Welcome to the Therapeutic Bullshit Podcast, where we become better therapists by cutting through our own bullshit. As therapists, we like to get high on our own excuses. Unfortunately, we don't often confront what it means when we lose our authenticity and our ability to connect with our own humanity. Welcome to all the shit you don't want to see. So this is episode two. It's not the client, it's you. No, seriously. So first of all, let's start off with, does this sound familiar? Fuck. Hypochondriac Helen drives me crazy. Sometimes I just want to shake her. As counselors and clinicians, we're going to have to grapple with all the annoying side effects of being a human who's alive and working with other humans. And like humans often do, we'll find all sorts of creative fun ways to blame our clients for what's happening inside of us. At a basic level, this can show up as blowing off steam and supervision or as the ever popular gallows humor. But counselor beware, this can also become fertilizer for a toxic belief that we've somehow got this all figured out and that clients are either broken or just don't know any better. In this episode, we'll look at how we can use our principles of polyvagal theory to better understand our own systems, take a real look at the language we use to talk about our clients, and some basic best practices we can use to continue engaging with our own bullshit instead of blaming our clients for the stench we've noticed right that that can turn into sort of like this sort of cynicism that creeps into what we do and how we think about other people um and it's not conscious it's not intentional like we really believe in the work that we do but Mm -hmm. it happens it does happen and one of the part one of the parts that really got to me because unfortunately when you're in a culture and everyone does this it's really easy to join Mm -hmm. and one thing about joining is that you start really realizing how much it actually impacts you mm-hmm. when we do these things yeah, and how start, how much we start looking at our clients in that manner unintentionally. Right. And really ruining sort of that interesting relationship that once they walk into your room mm-hmm. and you close that door, mm-hmm. those humors that we were using earlier creep right back up. Yeah. And I, I, again, and we'll talk more about this later, but Talking about, like, why does this happen? Like, why do we put onto others, you know, why is it easier to blame other people than to look at what's actually happening for ourselves? And why can, you know, like, that whole self-compassion piece? Because it's hard. Because it's really fucking hard. Um, And, again, what you were saying, I think, is just a really good point um, about the environments that we work in and even the communities in which we socialize in. you know, like if you work in an agency, for example, that, you know, many of us can attest to. And like, I mean, even before I was a therapist, when I did social work, um, certain agencies have a culture about Mm -hmm. them. Um, and every agency, I should, I take that back. Every agency has a culture. Yes. Some cultures are more compassionate and person, um, focused than others. Um, and so that can kind of like really reinforce this process, which, starts off innocently enough as a coping strategy and Mm -hmm. then can really actually become toxic. Right. And once we go into the polyvagal system, I'm really excited for you to talk about um, that sort of, I don't know if this is really it. This is my first time learning about the polyvagal theory. So (laughs) bear with me as I also have these questions. (laughs) But really, I'm really curious about the whys. Mm -hmm. So I'm one of my theories is it's a really good way for us to stay safe mm-hmm. and take care of us. Totally. Uh, when we start having really intense emotions about mm-hmm. 
how we're feeling with our clients. Yeah, absolutely. And polyvagal theory is, you know, I guess we'll kind of just launch right into it. Okay, I'm ready. So essentially polyvagal theory is a look at our um, system, as it were. And we'll start off with a quote that I thought was a really great way of looking at this. And it's from the book, The Polyvagal Theory in Therapy, Engaging the Rhythm of Regulation. And Deb Dana writes, we live a story that originates in our autonomic or our autonomic state, is sent through autonomic pathways from the body to the brain, and is then translated by the brain into the beliefs that guide our daily living. The mind narrates what the nervous system knows. Story follows state. Whoa. So what I really like about that is it looks at essentially our nervous system already has information before we're even aware that it's happened. Take a moment. Just just take a moment about that information. Mm-hmm. And that's insane. Yes, totally. And so this all goes back to basically the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is this really complex, amazing conduit that runs through your body. And it regulates a lot of different functions. And there's like the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system. And for the purpose of our podcast, I'm not going to get really deep into the weeds on this because it is, it's actually fascinating. I really encourage you to learn more about it. Mm -hmm. Um, as far as neurobiology goes, it has a lot of implications, especially for trauma. So, and there's also a lot of really great material, which we'll reference in the show notes. Um, many great podcasts around it too. Yes, absolutely. But for our purposes, what I really want to focus on is what does this mean for us as counselors and clinicians, not in relationship to the client, but in relationship to ourselves? Important. Yes. Because a lot of the material that's out there is more focused on like, how do we use this in trauma and like treatment and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. I want to talk about our own trauma and our own treatment. Yes. (laughs) The missing part. Yes. So just a real brief rundown on just some of the like fundamentals. Essentially, there are three parts to um, our polyvagal system, which you have dorsal vagal, which is essentially our lizard brain. It's the primitive part that's like survival. It's what allows us to play dead in the face of risk. Um, It's also can look like dissociation. So this is essentially a very deep sedate state. Mm. So your system actually inhibits function in order to survive. Whoa, wait. So what does that look like in session for us when we're in a dissociative mode? Yeah. So like when we have clients who are talking, then suddenly stop talking Ah. and they just kind of trail off and you notice that they're not really present anymore. They've kind of checked out. They've left their body. They are in a state of, you know, dorsal vagal. And when you begin to work with this, it's a lot of, um, you'll start to really be able to feel it, the Mm -hmm. states, um, in a more... Uh, subconscious um, submerged way, which we'll get into that a little bit more. But so there's the dorsal vagal Mm -hmm. and then there's the sympathetic nervous system, which is what we most commonly know. It's your fight or flight response. I know this one. Right. We, most of us do. And that's what we talk. We actually talk about this state more than anything. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it can be agitation being really activated and for clients, it can also look like mind reading, where we are assessing for danger by making assumptions about people and our environment. That sounds so dangerous. Yes, it <laughs> is. And a lot of the problems that we deal with as clinicians, right, is working with our clients' assumptions, right? Yes. 
And so what's really important too is we're gonna have to talk about our assumptions. But um bum. Um and then ventral vagal, which is essentially responsive, but it's not reactive. And this is the state you actually have to be in in order to be available for bonding, mm. for connection, mm-hmm. and for play. Yeah. Because we don't play when we're afraid. No. When we're in survival, like we we don't play. And so this is actually the, the ventral vagal. There's a lot of material out there about like being able to be in a regulated state so you can help clients co-metabolize mm-hmm. and process through these different other states that are impacted by trauma. That is so intense. And yet it makes so much sense. And also, why don't we talk about this more? Yes. Well, what's interesting is it's part of the reason why we don't talk about it more is because this is relatively, I mean newer in the sense that like neurobiology continues to be this like rapidly developing field. And, you know, we're learning more about the brain and our biological systems than was even feasible back in the time of Freud. And so it's, again, it's kind of like, yes, this was a theory and now we're actually having the research and the technology to be able to go, oh, yeah, that actually is true. Yay. And we can actually measure, it's called vagal tone. Mm -hmm. So that's a really interesting field in of itself. Again, please do more research and reading. Trust me, you will fall down the rabbit hole. It's so good. (laughs) So essentially, there are three concepts I want us to kind of absorb when we think about polyvagal theory and as we think about ourselves. So the first one is hierarchy. And this looks at these three different um, vagus states and looks at like, how do they stack in relationship to each other? Mm. So dorsal vagal is kind of like the base. We all have that. That is our primary survival function. And then on top of that, like if you imagine a ladder, right? So dorsal is the bottom rung. Then you have a sympathetic nervous system, which is halfway up the ladder. And then ventral vagal, you've actually reached the top of the ladder. Now, again, because of gravity, it's actually harder to stay in a ventral vagal state than it is to be in sympathetic or dorsal. Okay. Okay. So understanding those different states, how do you feel like they show up in your body? Do you have any sense of like what that looks like for you? Oh, personally? Yeah. Dorsal vagal, for sure. (laughs) I was definitely one of those kids where if I was going to get in trouble, I literally fainted. Yes. 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 <laughs> I was thinking about the plane thing. Or the plane. Don't even talk to me about yeah. planes. <laughs> I was going to tell you, by the way, total sidebar. Mm-hmm. I was listening to a podcast and someone was describing that exact experience. She's like, I faint on planes. And I yes. was like, oh, Marjorie, you're it's not a alone. Thing. It's, that's a thing. Fucking dorsal vagal <laughs> shit. Yeah. Because your system's like, oh, we're in danger. Danger. We're flying 40,000 feet above the Fucking earth. Fucking play dead. <laughs> That is the safest choice. Then the plane won't eat you. And then the plane won't eat me. And also, I will only be pretending to die instead of actually dying. (laughs) Okay, yeah. So that's a really... And something to notice, Mm -hmm. right? Is that you immediately were like, oh, this, yep, this totally makes sense. This is what I go to. Yes. We All all of our systems are very unique. Mm. So we have a tendency to go to certain strategies more than others. Okay. So for you, it might be dorsal vagal. It might be. Yeah. Yeah. And so then like for your sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight response, do you notice that or what does that look like for you? Fight or flight response, agitation activated and mind reading. That one is harder for Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. 
for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it wasn't until like when that whole plane thing, you were like, just give in to that anxiety. <laughs> and I was like, what? Excuse me? <laughs> I thought you're supposed to, you know, calm yourself down, ground yourself, find five senses to make your right? your system feel crap. Well, apparently, because if I was in dorsal yeah. vagal, I actually needed to get really anxious yep. and concerned and like really tap into that sympathetic nervous system before yep. I can even enter a ventral vagal. Yes. And so that's what's interesting is these three states form a circuit. Mm. And so when we talk about processing trauma, we actually need to complete these circuits in order to process it out of our body. Fuck that noise. Right? So Peter Levine, who talks about the body keeps score and talks about shaking in animals, like when they're recovering from like Mm -hmm. a trauma, they just got chased by a cheetah. And they kind of like do this like shaking thing. That's your vagus system. Damn. Yeah. So actually for me, it's interesting because for me, sympathetic nervous system all the way, I'm like, oh, would I like to ruminate for seven hours about what I said to this person and what they must think of me? Yes, I would. Oh my God. Sign me up for that. Easy. Yes. And so like elevated heart rate, blood pressure, um, Mm -hmm. being unable to sleep, uh, mind reading. Those are all things that really resonate for me. If I get to a dorsal vagal state, I know I'm actually having a really bad time. Wow. So that that that's information about my system where it's like, oh, wow, I've actually gone beyond what my normal <laughs> system or sort of my baseline is. Yes. And I've gone into dorsal vagal. And so that's a deeply depressed state. So would that mean then for mm-hmm. you, so since it's your natural to be in that sympathetic mm-hmm. nervous system, what do you have to do to complete circuit for you yeah so essentially moving through the three states right and so going to dorsal vagal is not necessarily a bad thing that Mm -hmm. can actually be a good thing but it is also a sign that like whoa there's a big shift happening okay and so i and again i think we have to be careful like with words like oh natural or like and even baseline i really don't like that word but Mm -hmm. i'm using it as a shortcut um because right each system is nuanced and unique and different Um, so that's why we want to focus for ourselves as counselors and clinicians, Mm. what does our system look like? Because when we better understand what these different states look like in our, and what they feel like in our body, because right, we can go through all of these states sitting with a client. The client may never know what's happening inside (laughs) our bodies, but we sure shit do. We sure do. (laughs) And, and I'm really curious. Mm-hmm. If we're if we become more aware of how this is happening in our sessions, mm-hmm. does that somehow change the other our clients? Yep. And so, like one of the theories is that we can actually help co-regulate. Hmm. And so, before we get into that, let's okay. talk a little bit about. Um, so we talked about hierarchy, yes. which looks at the, how those different states stack. And so, ventral vagal right requires safety in order to, you know, be available for all those things. Now, again, some people will be in ventral vagal most of the time. Mm-hmm. Trauma vastly impacts our ability to be in that state. So just notice that if you are a counselor or a clinician, you know, and you're a wounded healer and you were called to this work because of your own experiences, this may be part of your work. Or, and part of that is just noticing yeah. what's true for you. And it's not that like, oh, like I need to be in ventral vagal, like in order to do the work. It's not about that so much. It's more about better understanding so that we can have awareness. So yeah. when, when that thing happens in session, 
like, oh, wow, I, I'm now, my sympathetic nervous system has been activated. And I am activated. And, and this is what it, Yeah. And this is what that looks like. Because even just awareness is more likely to put us in ventral vagal. Because we're like, oh, no, it's just, I'm doing that thing. My body's doing that thing. Because mm-hmm. it, it, it received information that's telling me that I'm not safe. Yes. Now I can recreate. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's go back a little bit. It's too exciting. Okay. <laughs> it's so exciting. Um, so after hierarchy, let's look at neuroception, which is kind of what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. So essentially neuroception is the concept that we are taking in information all the time. Okay. We are constantly in communication. Our environment is constantly in communication with us. So as a result, something I like, okay, so this is like an exercise I like everybody to do. All right, I'm ready. Okay. So close your eyes or just kind of, you know, focus on a spot somewhere in the room and think about where you work. Okay. So whether that's in private practice or an agency, visualize what the building looks like, say in the parking lot. So you're a client, you go, you park, you get out of your vehicle and you approach the building. Just notice what the building looks like. Mm -hmm. What color is the building? Maybe what shape? Are there things out in front of the building? Are there plants? Is there lots of cars? Maybe not a lot of cars. Um, Is it in a downtown location or is it more rural? So just kind of like take in that sort of environmental information. Now imagine walking through the door. What is your door like? What does that entryway look like? Is the door heavy? Is it difficult to open? Or is it light and it swings open on a hinge and there's a little bell that signals your entrance? So these are all things, right? Immediately, we are getting lots of information. Our environment's saying, okay, so this is happening. There's a bell. This door's really heavy. It's hard to open, mm-hmm. right? So then we go into the place where we wait, wherever that might be. So just visualize what it's like to sit. And honestly, when I do this activity, I like people to do it. So next mm. time you go to your place of work, walk with consciousness and just notice what you notice. And so, yeah, when you enter the waiting space or the waiting room, what does that room look like? Is it a hallway? Is it an actual room? Mm-hmm. Is there a receptionist? What sort of art is on the wall? What color are the walls? Is there information on the walls that people can read while they wait? And now notice I'm not saying any of this is good or bad because actually what's good or quote bad is going to be different for each of us. Mm -hmm. And then imagine you come out to receive that client. What's that client's experience of being received by you when they get up from their chair? Do you shake their hand? Do you smile at them? What do you say? Do you say anything? Right? So just mm-hmm. kind of notice and think about hmm, how, whether it's like, oh, how are you today? Or maybe it's, oh, you know, it's so hot outside. Is the sun out? Yeah. That's actually one of mine. I always <laughs> tell whenever me they come how in. Yeah, beautiful like, it is outside. Yes. I always inquire <laughs> as to like what it was like. And so then you walk towards your room, right? And so again, you enter the therapeutic space. Mm-hmm. And what is that like? What is the door like to your office? You know, what is the seating like in your office? What sort of colors are present? What sort of smells? So the whole point of this, right, is to really tap into our neuroception. Because again, we are receiving 
uh, <laughs> hundreds of thousands, if not millions of bits of information, sensory information, you know, temperature, comfort, smells, um, the way someone said something, mm-hmm. or maybe the fact that there's silence. Yeah. And then we create a story around it. Whoa. So there's already an experience that we're having that we then narrate. So that's going back to that quote. The mind narrates what the nervous system knows. Story follows state. So if you walk into a space and you're like, I don't like this space, mm-hmm. you will create a story to explain why you don't like that space. Crazy. So that's neuroception. It's a highly refined thing. So again, kind of like looking for us personally, you know, how does your working space communicate safety to you? Not to your client. Now forget about your client. Yeah. Because we'll never talk about our clients here. (laughs) Rule number one. Right? Yeah. I'm trying to think. I think it feels fairly safe. Mm Mm-hmm. Generally. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I'm wondering if we could mm-hmm. take a quick break, mm-hmm. listen to some awesome music, mm-hmm. and uh, if that's okay with you, we'll yeah. be back in a little bit. Yep. And we're back. So we kind of left off at neuroception, and we were kind of just contemplating and reflecting on what communicates safety in our spaces to us. Mm-hmm. So for my space, um, what I like about it is the parking lot. And I kind of describe this to my supervisor as like, it's almost like a cove oh. because it's off of like kind of a, a main road, mm-hmm. but then the parking lot kind of circles around to the back and it's surrounded by trees. There's like lavender bushes and it creates this sort of little alcove where the city kind of disappears. Mm. And to me, I really enjoy that because it kind of sets the mood for me. Yeah. Before I even walk into the building. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. I'm now thinking of where I work. Mm-hmm. And the wind, the, what I see outside my window is the freeway. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah! <laughs> so that's sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. That maybe even just watching all these cars drive by really fast mm-hmm. can really sort of stimulate yeah. my system sure in a very interesting way yeah also i've noticed that also when i start paying attention to like people walking by or mm-hmm. going on walks with their dogs super cute <laughs> i sort of have lizard brain afterwards oh it's so very feel... weird mm-hmm. yes and so what'll be interesting is to kind of start to differentiate what dorsal and ventral vagal look like for you yeah because like I think to people, they'll see me and both feel similar. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then also, so something we talk about is in relationship to the client, which is the third thing is Mm co-regulation. And so this is the idea of being able to regulate ourselves in relationship to our environment. So part of that is through how we, how we story or narrate our experience. So it's like, oh, we walk in and it's like, oh. I don't like this office. You know, that's what our system is saying. Our system doesn't like this office for whatever reason. And then we'll say, I don't like her. Oh, right. Damn. Yeah. And we're, we can sort of place a story on top of the experience. And so when we can better understand what information we're being fed, the more we can begin to differentiate. So say we have a client just as an example who comes in and is wearing a strong perfume. Mm -hmm. Maybe we don't like that perfume. Yes. 
but we're like in the, in the, the flow of it. We're talking, we're introducing ourselves, we're doing this stuff. So we're not actually super consciously aware that we don't like their perfume because we're not taking the time to notice. But then we start to just feel like, I, this client's really annoying. Wow. And we start to have a story about it. Yes. And it could just be something, again, a signal our system has received. And again, I'm, I'm giving a very simplistic <laughs> example. This is, it's far more complicated than that. However, for our purposes and talking about it. Um, so some co-regulation stuff that we already talk about, something we talked about in grad school and certain practices is, for example, um, somatic experiencing. Mm-hmm. And like what we do as clinicians between sessions. Like, so some people get up and go for a walk. Yes. Some people have like a little ritual that they do when they leave their office so that they leave their work there. I don't think we practice or teach people about that. I mean, I think it was like, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> I think we like mentioned it maybe in a class, but it's not, it's not something about like really cultivating your own practice. Bless you. It comes in threes. I think that's it. Okay. It's allergy season here in Washington State, and my body is not wanting to function well. You're doing a great job, though. Thank you. I'm really (laughs) doing a good job holding it all in. Oh, no. Don't hold it in. And you can see, like, just tears in my eyes. Like, don't (laughs) sneeze. (laughs) I like how you're, like, diving three feet away from the mic to sneeze. As if it's going to help anything. (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying, guys. Yeah, so, I mean, again, it's, like, developing practices that help you regulate. Right. And so that's, we talk about between session, but what about in session? Oh, man. What do you do when you when you dissociate? Like, if you're in that dorsal state and you're like, wow, I've left my body mm-hmm. and I'm back five minutes later. I would grab something to touch. Mm, so mm-hmm. I have really close, I'm really, I have, really, I have, like a fidget spinner or actually like putty, something that doesn't create a lot of sound for people. Mm -hmm. And then it's okay for me to fidget with my own self Mm -hmm. is what I've been doing to stay present. Mm -hmm. Or at least when I notice that with certain clients, um, I tend to go into that state more Mm -hmm. than others. So putty or anything. What's the word for types of putty? Is it malleable? Is that the word? Well, they're malleable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then I'm curious, have you ever um, considered why that's happening? No. Tell me why. Oh, well, I don't know. I mean, that's that's a very personal question, right? Oh. Where it's like, what has happened that has activated your system or sent a signal to your system that this is the state you need to be in? Oh. Give me an example, because I think I need an example before I can start thinking of my Yeah, friends. so like, as you're sitting there with the client, suddenly you're like, wow... I'm feeling really dissociated, really Mm -hmm. out of my body. In fact, I almost feel like I'm going to faint, like I'm dizzy. Yes. What happened? Oh. I don't know. Yeah. Generally. That's the question. And so this is the whole practice of understanding our system so that we can begin to gauge what is actually happening inside of us mm-hmm. in response to the space that we're in or, okay. or the relationship we're in with the other person. Right. And sometimes it is. So this is polyvagal theory talks about in relationship, right? That if your client or whoever you're sitting with, maybe this could be your friend, your mm-hmm. partner, your family, um, is in a sympathetic state, it's going to actually draw you into their state. 
right? So like joining. Yes. So it's much, so if you have a client who is in a deeply dorsal vagal state, it might actually trip that for you a little easier. Yeah. If that's kind of where you go to naturally. Yes. Oh, yes. And so that can become, right, useful information. Yeah. Not only for yourself to be like, oh, I need to begin implementing my practices, whatever my practice is. And for some people, it's actually getting up out of their chair and walking Mm -hmm. over to their bookshelf and pointing something out or, you know, like you said, playing with something, fidgeting with something. Um, Some people have, you know, I was going to use sense, but I think a lot of us have done away with sense in our offices. But, Mm -hmm. you know, for some people who do, you know, having a scented item that they can smell um, can help ground them, so to speak. That's cool. Mm -hmm. And the same is true. Like, so for me, the tendency is to become activated in response. And it's very easy for me to join with clients um, when they're activated. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I have to really check in with myself. And when I start to have that pressured speech and I start talking a lot and I'm like, whoa, suddenly you know, that awareness where it's like, huh, I have actually left (laughs) my ventral (laughs) vagal state. I am no longer available for connection or bonding. Yes. Because I'm now in this state in response to something, whether it's in response to what happened with the other person or some sort of environmental factor. Mm -hmm. It actually, you know, it's like, it almost doesn't matter what it was. It's how we narrate it. Yes. So instead of saying, wow, you're such an idiot, like you're so anxious and nervous and God, you suck at this. Why? Stop talking. Right. Because I'm like literally just verbatim (laughs) the reel in my head. Instead of that, I can be like, oh, how interesting. Hmm. I'm actually kind of curious why that just happened. Mm -hmm. You know, so and that allows us to have more compassion. So now now that you're giving me examples, I'm trying to now think of what my narrative or the way I'm having the story when I'm mm-hmm. asleep, mm-hmm. if you will. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> Your sleep state. My sleep state. And it's really it's really sort of this interesting conversation of, wake up. Why are you thinking about that? What were you thinking about? Stop it. You mm-hmm. need to pay attention. Open up your eyes. Mm-hmm. Nod your head. Mm-hmm. Stop blinking. Don't, no, don't yawn. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be okay. Because mm-hmm. that's going to convey. And it's sort of just like this constant, no, no, do, please, stop, yeah. go. Right. Yeah. Because we get into that like, oh, no, we must manage the state that we're in. Yeah. Instead of being like, oh, but I know what to do. When I get into this state. Yeah. I've been here before. Yeah. It's part of the game. Yeah. It's part of me. Mm -hmm. So that's something that's why I think it's really helpful to look at polyvagal theory when we really look at ourselves um, as people. It's mostly just not to panic in session. Right. Don't panic. (laughs) Don't panic. Those panic buttons. (laughs) (laughs) Don't panic. Calm down. Please don't say that to people. <laughs> or get more activated. I don't know. Like, yeah. maybe you don't need to calm down. Maybe you need to stand up. Stand up. Get the fuck up. Yeah. So, th- again, that's going to look different for everybody. And so, again, it's also helpful to really know what you're like when you are in that ventral vagal state, when you are available for connection, mm. for bonding, and play. Yes. Because when we're in that state, if we can recall that state in our minds, mm-hmm. we can actually narrate the experience of saying, wow, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a little panicky right now. Mm-hmm. And that's okay because I know, I remember what it's like to not. 
So I'm curious because mm-hmm. this popped into my head now. Yeah. If this has any correlation between, ooh, I really enjoy this client because I'm actually in my ventral vagal mm-hmm. sometimes during this time hour. Mm-hmm. Who knows what it is mm-hmm. versus, you know, at a certain time where I have easier access to my dorsal. Mm-hmm. Is that a thing? Well, and I mean, maybe for like okay. for your system, right? Right. So like for some people, um, and again, I think it's important to to note this is tied to to really deep safety stuff, right? Because we all have times where we're sleepy and we are checked out because we just had a big lunch and we're mm-hmm. like, oh, I need a nap, right? Right. And so that's a little bit different than an actual dorsal vagal state. The example of you fainting on the plane that is a dorsal vagal gotcha. state. Where it's okay. actually a physiological response where you're like, whoa. And, and it's outside of our control. Yeah, it's just going to happen. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just happening. And it's something that our system, because our system is acting in advance, responding to information that we have yet to narrate. Okay. So that's the whole thing about like a panic attack. Some people are like, I don't even know what caused my panic attack. Well, you don't know, but your system already knows. Your yeah. system already took in a piece of information <laughs> and was like, whoa, the bear is in the room. Let me figure this out. Yeah. And so then our narrative is like, oh, I can't, I'm starting to panic. There must be something to panic about. Let's do it. Instead of maybe the story is, oh, yep, I'm having that, that panic attack thing. And that's, I know what to do, mm-hmm. you know? And so that can be a different, so that's, you know, again, we can get into narrative therapy on ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't this the point? Right. (laughs) All right, cool. So now that we've kind of like gone over basically what polyvagal theory is about, Mm -hmm. now let's kind of do this activity. Okay. And I kind of call this activity gaze and you shall receive. That sounds really scary. I know. (laughs) Right? Because it's all about like eye contact. Oh, God. And so we're going to walk, you know, the listeners through it and we're going to kind of do it. Although it'll be difficult to like talk and do this, but just for the sake of um, modeling it. And then we can kind of talk about what it was like to do it. Okay. So essentially what we're going to do, well, first I'll say a little bit about the activity is that our eyes send and search for signals of safety, which is kind of that neuroception piece we talked Mm -hmm. about. And we can feel the power of the eyes and they send cues of safety or danger. And we can basically discover more about that by experimenting with a variety of ways of focusing with our eyes. Wow. So this simple exercise essentially is just a way to gain awareness of the different state changes that occur with subtle shifts in eye contact. Damn. Right? So again, we're doing this to increase our own awareness of eye contact. Okay. I'm ready. (laughs) Good. Okay. So you're going to want to do this with a partner for anybody who's listening. And, um, you know, it can be with your actual partner. It can be with a friend. It can actually be with anybody because you'll gain information no matter who you do this with. Mm -hmm. Um, So between the two people, decide who is the looker and who is the receiver. So do you want to be the looker or the receiver? I want to be the receiver. Okay. So the, for the looker, so I'm going to be the looker. I'm going to start with a stare that is strong, focused, maybe even glaring. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to hold this look for a few moments, 30 seconds if you can stand it. Okay. Okay. I generally think that I do a really good job. Okay. So you're just going to, the receiver is just going to sit there and receive it. Okay? okay. And notice what comes up for you. Okay. As I do this. Okay. Okay. 
Has it been 30 seconds? No, not even close. But for the sake of radio, right? Yes. <laughs> it's been 30 seconds. Okay. So now I'm going to shift into a look that is neutral. Okay. okay. All right. So now I'm going to shift to a soft gaze that is warm and inviting. And what we're going to try and do is to do this without smiling with my face, but just with my eyes. Smizing. Okay. Smizing. Thanks, I love Tyra that. Tyra Banks. Is that from Tyra Banks? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Smizing. Okay. Yeah. So do it with your eyes. So okay. we're going to try this now. It was a lot harder for me to do without smiling. <laughs> My face is like twitching. Don't do it. <laughs> that was easier to receive for me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So now kind of now I'm going to ask you some questions, Marjorie, okay. as the receiver. During each period of eye contact, mm -hmm. what did you notice? Like, so let's start with the, the hard stare, the like glaring. What oh, I wanted notice? to leave. You wanted to leave. Yeah. I, my body literally felt like it was jumping. So where were you on that ladder? I was definitely in the sympathetic. Yeah. So like flight. Flight. Let's just get out of You're here. You're like, whoa. And it's very interesting because I was like, no, this is just an activity. And I love Lindsay. Yeah. And yet my whole body, because I was just trying to receive it, mm -hmm. was like, fuck this noise. <laughs> Because you're like, I, I know Lindsay's not yeah. going to do anything to me, but mm -hmm. my body doesn't. No, it did not. Mm -hmm. Right. So then, like, let's talk about just the neutral gaze. Mm -hmm. Neutral was easier. Mm -hmm. um, there wasn't as jumpy. Mm -hmm. But also this interesting, like, maybe I should also, like. Do something? Do something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then for the softer gaze, what was that like? That was nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was yeah. like, oh, I can, I, I can do this mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. So again, you're going to notice like different things in your body. It's interesting. That you're like, I actually wanted to get up and leave. Cause that's, that's how I feel when I'm like, oh, someone doesn't like me, <laughs> you know? Um, and so just for our listeners out there, this will be available in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to like remember all this stuff. There's a step-by-step uh, activity, uh, thing that you can just print out with another person and kind of go through it together. So good. So then as the looker, something we discuss is, um, oh, we kind of did this. So like asking about the three different types of eye contact mm -hmm. and then receiver. So, um, what was it like to deliver these looks for you? Mm hmm. Well, I kind of said like the, the soft gaze one was hard because I kept wanting to smile. Yeah. And, and I was why? like, my mouth was twitching <laughs> because I was like, I'm like looking and I'm like, but wait, maybe it's not so like, what if it's not nice oh. enough? Maybe they're not actually picking up on that. Like, okay. What if it's not like, cause then I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, well, what, what do my eyes even look like right yeah. now? Am is, I so is that even ventral? Right. Yeah. I don't know. Because I'm sitting there like running through all the possibilities <laughs> of being like, I'm trying to mind read. <gasps> <laughs> I was trying to mind read you so that I could convey that I was being inviting. Isn't that crazy? Yes. And then the, actually what's interesting is the stare, mm -hmm. the glare was more, it felt like performative, right? Because I was like, 
this is hilarious. Yeah, so beyond. Like, <laughs> I get to perform. Yes, it felt very, like, stage-like because, of course, I don't have any, like, negative yes. feelings towards you. So it was like, I don't know. And then the neutral one was kind of weird because I kept, um, like, I don't know. It made me a little nervous to do the neutral one because then I felt like, am I blinking too much? Like <laughs> So you're in sympathetic yes, this whole all the time. time. Yeah, I'm just like, <laughs> I'm getting very stressed out by this activity. Hey, that's good to know. Yeah. Just and so, notice. right. Just noticing. Like, you know, so when you go through this activity is check in with not only your thoughts, mm-hmm. but your feelings yes. and your physical body. Speaking of which, I know about your thoughts. That's what you sh- you shared mm-hmm. with us right now. What were you feeling and how was your physical body? Um. So I was feeling... You know, it's kind of interesting is I really wasn't registering what I was feeling Mm -hmm. because I was more thinking, which I think I'm just a thinky person. (laughs) So, right. You know, I'm like, hmm, I'd have to actually really think about it and probably do it again just to notice that part. To pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm like really cerebral and like up in my head a lot. So that's interesting because I chose body. And if anybody out there is familiar with the Enneagram, I am a seven, which is a head type. And I'm a nine, which is a gut type. Yeah. See? Body. Perfect. Yeah. Boom. Done. We it makes all. sense. <laughs> now we should do polyvagal and the Enneagram. Yes! Holy shit. That's another episode. Yes. Well, one of those days. So that was a really cool educational part of our podcast. Mm-hmm. And now I'm kind of ready to get messy. Right? <laughs> We're leaving academics behind now. <laughs> it's 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 this. It's now us being messy and fucking up a little bit and <laughs> just humanizing the therapist mm-hmm. in general. Um, so we wanted to talk about how we talk about clients, Gallo's humor again, and of course, cynical creep. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you want to do this. Well, I mean, oh, yeah. So, yeah. So there was another quote. Again, this is um, from Deb Dana, who does the polyvagal stuff, but it also ties into this. Um, And the quote is, uh, Dana writes, trauma compromises our ability to engage with others by replacing patterns of connection with patterns of protection. So how is that related to what we were just talking about and what we're about to talk about with language? Mm -hmm. Right? So vicarious traumatization. Why yes. we need to know it. And we talk about like, oh, we're going to do trauma work with clients. <laughs> but like, we don't do trauma work with ourselves. Oh, what? <laughs> and that's right. Bitch, please. Yes. And so <clears throat> burnout, right? Yeah. Vicarious trauma. Secondary vicarious trauma. Yes. This, these are all things that we are bombarded with. Daily. Yes. And whether, believe or whether or not, we're not what is the word i don't want to say gods Mm -hmm. but we're not not impenetrable right to all of these things we are affected we are impacted constantly yes and we're human yes just like you know like when we're talking about first responders Mm -hmm. right people who responded to 9-11 right are still right Still. still fighting for medical care mental health services Um, the physical impact of Mm -hmm. what's happened to their bodies as a result of being exposed to the chemicals and the dust. Right. This is what's kind of happening to us. Yes. And no one is paying attention. Well, there is, but it's not a big deal. 
Right. Or we downplay it because we're yes. supposed to have the tools to manage oh it. Oh my God. If I hear another uh, one of us therapists <laughs> say, well, I know these things. I should be able to do these things. And I should actually right. be able to talk to myself about these things. I was mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. sure. Sure. Which is funny because we were just talking about, right? Like polyvagal. Oh, it's part of like knowing your system better and stuff like that. But insight is not enough. Insight is not enough. <laughs> we say this all the time. Oh, God. Can you quote that? Yes. I'm going to get a tattoo to my ass. Like, insight is not enough. It never is. It, it's helpful to notice and to know because awareness and insight is the beginning. It And that's just it. Yeah. It's the beginning. Yes. So why do we spend so much time talking about it? It's like, well, be, because we have to start there. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're starting, yes. to be honest. Right. And so the other thing that I was thinking about, and maybe you want to talk more about this, but sure. like, like not being conscious. So like we talked a little bit about like gallows humor mm-hmm. and like cynicism. And yes. so like, I'm curious, maybe we can talk a little bit about like, how has that shown up for us in our own work? I just did a quick like reverse back because <laughs> first of all, first of all, thanks Dom for that. <laughs> We also will probably be quoting a lot of our friends mm-hmm. in the way we speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so not being conscious. To... Or like, how does it show up in our work? Oh, man. So when it comes to gallows humor, that was probably the first thing that you felt like you should figure out how to learn mm. in order to survive mm-hmm. any agency. Mm-hmm. Which... I've been, I worked at multiple agencies and it's been the same so far, different types of humor Mm -hmm. nonetheless, but it almost feels like a skill that you need to figure out how to do. Yeah. Otherwise you can't communicate with them, Mm -hmm. with your fellow workers. workers, Yeah. Right. So if you're not doing that, there's like an interesting disconnect immediately. Yeah. It's like, you're not one of us. You're not one of us. Yeah. and And you don't belong in. You know, that's a really big part. And that's scary. Right. So safety is compromised. Yes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which is funny because you were take at the beginning of our Mm -hmm. podcast, you said that it's really a safety piece. And if you're not joining, you're not safe. Yeah. And if you're in an agency where you need to be working as a team, Mm -hmm. what if you're not part of that team? Yeah. And then it sort of just impacts you in all of the other ways. Mm -hmm. Because you don't feel safe. Yeah. You couldn't, you can't voice the way you've... Is that what's been true for you? Yes. Right. Because I generally have a hard time even, and I, and so in my personality type, I have a hard time saying absolute things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Everything's maybe. Everything's maybe. (laughs) Um, But I just can't stand as innocent as the word kiddos. Oh. I can't. That word. Mm -hmm. That word feels so littling mm-hmm. to how amazing mm-hmm. children are. Yeah. So you're talking about like when one of your coworkers calls them kiddos? Yes. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that sounds like it's going to be really hard. But I have a hard time <laughs> with that. You're getting mad just sitting here talking about it. Um, And that's just a really easy way for them, for us as, the, as an agency to sort of normalize mm-hmm. trauma for kids and because mm-hmm. we do deal with sexual abuse a lot we're one of the only partners that 
Child Advocacy Center has when it comes to sexual abuse for children. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard sometimes to just be like, well, this kiddo, and I'm just like, (sighs) how can we say this without saying their name, Mm -hmm. without this whole thing? And I don't know. Do you feel like sometimes, because what I find, Mm -hmm. or what's true for me anyway, is when I start using words like that or language, I just notice that it's often because I'm tired mm. and I start to shortcut. Okay. Because it it's like it takes less energy to really do the humanizing thing. It does. Because I have to think, like, you know, I have to take that extra second. And it's really just a second that we're talking about, <laughs> right? It's like literally milliseconds. But just those extra milliseconds, it's like... And it's a lot. It's exhausting. And I'm wondering if that's the same for when we use humor. Yes. Oh, totally. Okay. But I notice, like, so when I use humor and when I'm, like, if I if I make kind of a shitty comment mm-hmm. about a client or a group of clients, it, like, hits me now when I do it. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting, which I don't know, maybe you can talk about this or this would be an interesting topic, is, like, so my experience, my personal experience of having been in the mental health system yeah. in a medical model mental mm-hmm. health system was I always felt broken. I always felt defective. I felt like that's what doctors thought. That's what therapists thought of yeah. me. And so when I've said it, cause I certainly have, you know, like I'm not, yeah, I am not perfect by any means. And so I've said shitty things mm-hmm. and then it's like almost like, Punching myself in the face it's a little painful. bit. <laughs> it's painful. Because usually it's like, oh, I'll, I'll say a thing because I'm tired or whatever, just yeah. pissed off. And then I'm like, Ugh. fuck. Yeah. Mine are, mine are even smaller things uh-huh. now. Like, God, they really irritated me in my yeah. session. Right? Mm-hmm. Even as small as, not small, but mm-hmm. those have been really difficult to say. Yeah. It almost feels like when when I've said something like that, it's like little Lindsay. Yeah. It's like, like I'm almost like watching a younger version of myself, the expression on her face. Right. And then I imagine some people, if you do end up listening to our podcast, might even say like, well, what's the difference between just like letting off steam mm-hmm. versus, yeah. you know. Well, that's a really good question. What is the difference? I don't know, Lindsay. Tell me. <laughs> No, you know, though. <laughs> I uh, mean, because we do it. Like, okay. Right. So think about, like, like you, myself, mm-hmm, Diana, yes. Dom. You know, like, when we get together and we're doing the thing mm-hmm. with each other, mm-hmm. you know, what's the difference between that and, like, some of the other things that we're talking about? Because we make a lot of jokes. We and do a lot make of, a lot of jokes. We're very sarcastic and very inappropriate. <laughs> right. Very inappropriate. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. One, the first thing that popped into my mind was that we are all aware that this is what's happening. Right. That this is because it needs, this is the only way I know how to be safe right now. Yeah. I imagine. Mm -hmm. And then also, sort of also the way we talk to each other, there's this like mutual understanding that this is not factual. Right. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean, like... Yeah, I agree with all that. And I think for me, what comes up for me when I think about that is because I implicitly trust each and every Mm. one of you to call me on it (laughs) 
if it ever goes too far. Yes. Like if suddenly that was starting to show up in my work, if that was actually starting to, you know, leak out of those like spaces that we share. Yeah. I trust every single one of you to be like, dude, that's actually, well, I shouldn't even say dude. (laughs) Wait, I said the word dude. I was like, (gasps) oh, I said guys earlier and that uh, also happened to me. I know. Anyway. See this is yeah. See this it's is what part happens. of it. It's this is purgatory. We're all just in hell. It's fine, but like that. Like I implicitly trust each one of you to call me on that and say, Lindsay, this is not fucking okay. Yeah. It's like not are funny. you? And actually, I don't think even you. None of you would say that. You would say, Lindsay, are you okay? Yeah. That's actually what you would say. Right. And I trust every single one of you to to notice and be like. You know, I'm actually a little worried about you. Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on for you? Yeah. Because this isn't what you believe. Yeah. Or this is not what I know of you to be true. Right. And so I think that that for me is what the difference is. Where it's like, oh. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I think it is kind of a, a it, can, it can become a slippery slope. It can be. And I think that's why sometimes it's just easier for us to just join. Yes. Yeah. especially if we don't feel safe right yeah and and it's sort of survival Mm -hmm. to just go ahead and do it anyway or at least just be neutral which also feels really weird Mm -hmm. to just witness it all happening yeah i feel like that weird bystander that's like it's fine if everyone loves trump Mm. (laughs) (laughs) this is fine (laughs) but also noticing right how dangerous it could be to disagree it's very dangerous. Yeah. More isolation. Yeah. Or even like sabotage or, yeah. you know, depending on your social memberships. Less like, support. Yeah. Supremacy comes into play, you know. Big and time. Yeah. So I think it's really important to acknowledge because, and this is also why I think it's easy, like call out culture. Mm-hmm. Like this is just my little sidebar. That's actually why I don't like call out culture. Yes. Because I actually think it it doesn't take into account safety. No. And it asks people to, to essentially put themselves, like paint the target on themselves. Ooh. You know, by being the person, it's like, oh, well, I know better. So it is my responsibility to call this person out because they're doing a shitty thing. But the- so give me an example because I feel okay. like. Yeah. Generally. Oh, I have a I have a great example for you because this always pisses me off. Um, <laughs> when someone says, "Well, you know, borderline clients," <gasps> or you know, those borderlines, mm-hmm. and that actually makes me want to turn inside out and flip out. Like it actually makes me want to act out in really bad ways. Well, you should, <laughs> right? Because it's super awful. Yes. And yet, not every situation is that going to be okay to call out. Or is that going to be a situation that it's even, you know, like I can say in an, in an equal peer relationship, peer to peer. Yeah. I could lean into that more. Sure. But what if it's a superior (sighs) in an agency? Yeah. You actually cannot, especially if it's not been their culture for very long. I mean, you can, but there could be some really big costs associated with that. You know, and seen it happen. (laughs) Yes. And I think, you know, as I say that, it's like, oh, I feel like 
I, even as I said that I was having a judgment about me saying that where I was like, wow, I feel like I'm over exaggerating, but I can actually think of examples off the top of my head where it happens all the time. Yeah. It's interesting. Someone wanted to present a case and they wanted to say like they were borderline personality and everyone that the client was. Yeah. And everyone scooted their chairs back. And just small things like that. But notice that is a neuroception piece. That is a neuroception piece. That's body language in action where it's like, oh, I <laughs> received a message. Yes. Yes. And no one knew why. What do you think it was? Um, we were taught for so long that it's scary and we don't do personality disorders at our oh. agency. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we're not trained and well-equipped for all these things. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Sure. Right. And so notice that there is a story tied to that. There's a story to the personality so, disorder. So just hearing the words borderline personality disorder, and I'm sorry to, to like harp on this particular one, but I think it has such a huge stigma and yep. it really is very upsetting for, and I'll just name the reasons, right? is that historically it has been used to oppress, marginalize, and control, especially female-identified persons. Yes. And it um, often, like you were saying, is a barrier to people receiving treatment and help and support. Yes. Or being even seen as someone who's in a lot of pain. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. It was really hard. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I think that's, that's a really good example, and we all have those examples in our lives. You know, um, I think, so I'm kind of thinking about one of the other questions we had discussed, Mm -hmm, which one, um, which is like how humor, kind of like what we were saying, how humor is the very best medicine, but it can also be like a potential doorway or permission for our shadow self. And what I mean by that is, um, something I'm thinking about is we talk about, we like that like weird nebulous we (laughs) but like when we think about like racism yes and we talk about telling a racist joke yes and how sometimes telling a joke is a way of testing the waters yes to see to gauge who you're with yeah because when someone drops a racist joke right Mm -hmm. How does the room respond? Gives us a lot of information about who's in the room. Yes. And not necessarily in in the obvious way even, where it's like, I mean, think about a racist joke getting dropped and say there's two people of color in the room and they laugh. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't necessarily think what we think it means. It doesn't necessarily mean that they think it's okay. Yeah. It's just a response. Mm -hmm. Could be an automatic response. Yeah. Could be uh, because they're too afraid (laughs) (laughs) to say something. Right. So there's right. a safety thing there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking about like how we even talk about our clients and it's like, oh, when we make those jokes, are we testing the room? Yeah. Can I? Yeah. What do you say think? this? Oh, I, yeah, I guess it kind of depends on who you're with, mm-hmm. but I'm trying to see if, like, when I use humor, what do I do? What is my purpose? Mm -hmm. My purpose is generally feeling some sort of tension. Mm -hmm. And I just need to know where I can go with a serious topic. Mm. So it's almost like penetrating attention. 
keep saying tension, penetrating something to like mellow out mm-hmm. what's going on. Yeah. So it's like popping a balloon. It's popping a balloon for yeah. me. Okay. Yeah. So it like relieves the tension. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you? Um, I think I do use humor a lot as testing. Mm-hmm. Like when I think about them, like, hmm. Because some, which I have totally caught myself doing, and I don't even think it's always like an awareness, right? And this is kind of like being really honest and like vulnerable, but like having made a shitty joke just to see who will laugh at it. Yeah. And like now I'm like literally like just sitting here thinking about that. I'm like, wow, that's kind of fucked up. I should not. <laughs> I should stop doing that. But I mean, it, and then like, but if I'm curious about it yeah, and I go, huh, so what's that about? Why am I doing that? Yeah. And I think that's tied to safety. Yeah. I think it's, it goes back to like, no, I need to figure out who those people are. So I know how to protect myself against them. And you know what to say. Yeah. And the sooner I can identify them that's and get that good. out in the open, then I'll know how to handle them. So would that be a sympathetic nervous system e vibe? Mm, not necessarily. I think I think it depends. Like I'd have to think about it next time I do it. Like I'd okay. have to actually see this is this is why we say just notice because I'm trying to like think of like what was happening for me when that happened. I can't. Yeah. Okay. Like I don't I don't know what was happening for me. So that would so what's interesting as a result of this conversation, I now have a little bit of material. <laughs> To, like, reflect on next time and be like, oh, I wonder if I can, like, notice myself when I do that next time. Because it's constant work. Yes. And this is the whole point of our podcast. Right. (laughs) It's always work. It's always work, and we actually never stop anywhere. And actually, that leads right into our next part when we talk about best practices. As counselors and clinicians. Yes. And so one of the things was um, why the work doesn't stop after grad school. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, right, okay. So we're just going to talk a little bit about, without naming names or anything. Uh-huh. But you know what I'm talking about. That there, there are people mm-hmm. in our field who do the thing, who get the license, who maybe get certified in something. They do their minimum CEUs. Yep. And then they're an expert. Yeah, and then they're done. They don't see a therapist. Right. They're the consultation. Yeah, they give supervision, but maybe they're only doing, like, the bare minimum. Yes. Right. And it happens. This also, just wanted to point out, this happens with any career (laughs) that you choose. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. (laughs) It just so happens that our career is therapy. Yes. So, or therapists. And Mm -hmm. so, I just wanted, I'm always in that whole, Mm -hmm. let's generalize this shit. Because I'm feeling nervous about calling out therapist yeah oh fuck i know yeah for being really honest right? for being really honest it really like puts my nervous system into a different interesting frenzy that i'm mm-hmm. not comfortable with mm-hmm. um so what are you worried about i'm worried about people's feelings getting hurt hmm. that by just saying it that just by saying it mm-hmm. it's interesting i don't mind saying like we all suck right but it's really hard for me to, like, some of us suck. <gasps> oh. Yeah. So it's, like, easier to include yourself in the self-deprecation. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so, I, and so I don't just know notice what... that about yourself. <laughs> Fine. I will. I will. I will. <laughs> yes. 
Um, but it does happen and, and it's very obvious. And in fact, so obvious that I often get a lot of transfers saying like, I don't know what the fuck my therapist did. Mm. Right. And that's really sad to me because I want everyone to be great mm-hmm. more or less, or at least do no harm. Right. I can only wish for so much. Yes. But, <clears throat> and I just noticed that that's generally one of the biggest but what is the word that I want? Like criteria that says to me, you've stopped. Oh, like, like, so you see it in their clients. Like when you get a client who transfers to you. Yes. And then they're telling you about the previous therapist and you're like, oh, I feel like I have a sense of what that's about. At least one of those criteria. No, granted. Right. Not all clients are going to enjoy us and right. it doesn't mean that you actually suck. Right. Totally. Um, but there is a different, like, uh, it's interesting the ones that they're like we just didn't get along mm-hmm. versus like I don't know what my therapist I feel like they didn't know what I was talking about or oftentimes it's too advicey mm-hmm. they're telling them what to do constantly yes and that's where it starts like because they're probably just reactive and responding to responding to all of the things that they think people need and they're mm-hmm. mind reading everybody. Or whatever it is, or they've mm-hmm. fallen asleep. I don't care. Mm-hmm. But. Well, and I think it's also, like, it can show up in the other ways, too, where you have people using maybe terminology or language that is really outdated. Yeah. And it's like, oh, wow, we don't we don't use that language anymore for really good reasons. Yeah. But like, then you'll encounter people who are using that language, and you're like, oh. Fucking someone wrote woman batterer. Oh, yes. Yes. Like stop it <laughs> right like and and that's a that's a thing right that we don't use that word anymore because it's really dehumanizing mm-hmm. and it's it's really um not recovery oriented and it's not person-centered and 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 right yes that it has a connotation and association and stigma attached to it that could actually end up being a barrier to that person getting support there's this awesome, <laughs> when it comes to that language again, and we're sort of going back into that, but there's this awesome meme that I think you sent us. Oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, Lindsay no. does that in case you didn't know that. Um, but it was <clears throat> a picture of a, 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 pers- a little dog, like a Labrador, mm-hmm. smiling, and then right next to it is like this beast mm-hmm. where it says, assessment on top of it and then on there is like actual person oh yeah 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 right (laughs) yes because sometimes we read what's in the assessment and we're like oh my god what is about to walk through my door yeah wording matters yeah language matters oh man and it's right none of us are perfect it's always a work in progress totally but the point is best practices is to stay engaged with your field and the conventions of your field and the best practices of your field yes so if you you know like right if i'm gonna treat trauma then i need to be making sure that i'm staying abreast of like research on trauma and like new modalities or even updates to the current modalities that we use like trauma-informed cbt yeah Right. Which, by the way, still needs to keep getting updated. Yes, totally. I'm not saying we should ever stop with any of them. But it's like, you know, if you're not, if you don't even have your finger on the pulse of it, there's something that happens and there's like an erosion. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, very palpable to our clients. Mm-hmm. 
when we don't know our shit or at least curious about learning other ways yeah of doing therapy Mm -hmm. well and i think that's like going back to like best practices what we kind of came up with and i'm sure people i'm you know listeners out there if you have best practices that you think should be mentioned like definitely send us a message I, i would love to hear from you all um yes but like what we came up with right is like good supervision mm-hmm. um going to our own therapist <laughs> <laughs> really no but actually really because here's the thing is a lot of people say oh well i mean like i'm not depressed or anything like that i'm like no but vicarious trauma is real yeah and burnout burnout is real so stop stop <laughs> pretending like you can do this on on your own you were not a superhero you were not a superhero i don't care if someone has told you that mm-hmm but superman needs to go to a therapist right even superman needs a therapist God damn. God damn. And it doesn't mean like you have to see the therapist all year round. Right, right. I'm Weekly just, sessions. I mean, yeah. That's what we're saying. But have one. Have a relationship with a therapist that you are at least checking in with. Yeah. Yeah. So important. And also have a relationship established so that when shit ultimately fucking goes down, which it <laughs> fucking will. Yes, it will. You already have a relationship with a therapist and you're not having to do it in crisis mode while yeah. also juggling your clients and your practice yeah. and stuff like that. And even small basic things. Totally. Just so that you're reminded of how your clients feel in mm-hmm. sessions. Mm-hmm. I mean, even just like, for example, for me going to my therapist, or I found yeah. I found a different therapist and it was just constant nerves, constant like, wow, this is really difficult Mm -hmm. to unbear my soul. Yeah. And that's my, and my issues were very, hmm, I don't know what word I want to use for my issues. If you use minor, I'm going to push you out this window. It's not minor, (laughs) but it was definitely, I could definitely say what my issues were. Okay. So it was easy. You could articulate I could articulate what was going on and I had an idea of how I can manage them. Right, sure. Um, but even something like that was very difficult. Yeah. So it's really good reminders so that when we come in our sessions and our client comes in, like, there's an incredible amount of, is it compassion? Mm-hmm. Empathy? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Something that All happens. All of the above? All of the above. <laughs> where it's just. It helps the, us stay more. It helps us stay in touch with what makes us human. Yes. In ourselves and in our clients. Yes. I think that's the missing part so if mm-hmm. you've never been to counseling and you're a therapist oh dear god i don't know what school you went to <laughs> but that school needs to make that a requirement yes it's not your fault it's that school spot fault and now that you know go see a therapist yes right because once you know just do better and yeah. we all need to do better like that was actually part of my like I ended up going to couples counseling with um, my husband and not actually because we really had like problems or anything which is so funny <laughs> we, we went to the therapist and you know she's like doing things she's like okay so like yeah tell me why we're here <laughs> and then we're kind of like well you know we kind of just like want to work on like our communication because you can always work on communication yeah. and like we're thinking about fostering and you know, I, I was previously divorced and I'm like, and I just, you know, um, like I don't like, we're not having any problems, but I also don't want to ignore it until it becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. Like I did in my previous marriage. Yeah. Prevention. Yes. And she looked at us and she's like, you realize this is like the unicorn of all like, (laughs) because most people go in crisis. Yes. But part of the other reason that we went to couples counseling was because I, 
as a marriage and family counselor was like, huh, I've never been to couples counseling. I probably should do that. Yeah, and I'm like, and yet here I am going to be providing couples counseling. Gee. (laughs) (laughs) It's not okay to Uh, be a hypocrite. uh, Yeah, I'm like, I have no idea what it's like to be on the other side of it. And not that we're always going to know what it's like for our clients, but that is something that is doable. Absolutely. That's something that it's like, well, I can at least get a little taste of what it's like to sit in the chair with my partner. Yeah. You know, and and, yeah, and some of those feelings. So good. I am really excited. Well, how do you feel about the best best practices? Because I just want to go straight into consultation versus supervision. Uh, Yeah, we need to talk about that because you were saying you were doing research on it. So (sighs) let it all out, girl. Let it all out. It has been making me so upset. (laughs) (laughs) You almost made me spit up. Of how little I knew <laughs> of how shitty it's been. And it, I don't think it's their fault, whoever has been my supervisors. I have truly enjoyed you. <laughs> Except. You just hearted the mic. I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Except I don't think anyone actually knows what a clinical supervisor should do. Yeah. I realize, though, before we go into supervision, because that's okay. where my tiff is. Right. With consultation, my agency actually does a phenomenal job of doing consultation. Awesome. Right. We're all aware that we're all just giving advice and different perspectives mm-hmm. on what's going on and for you to take or not to take. Right. It's just giving extra eyes mm-hmm. to a situation you're having a hard time with. Mm-hmm. So great. Right. And no one is liable. Mm-hmm. to any of that shit right because we're just trying to yeah maybe provide a different lens yeah providing mm-hmm. a different lens whether yeah. you want it or not yeah take it right. or leave it mm-hmm. i don't care mm-hmm. but I'm and nobody here. has to be invested in that and no one has to be invested in yeah. it and it's so great however <laughs> we somehow <But. laughs> think that supervision is just consultation <sighs> All right, so same. And I don't know if anyone is aware of this, but anything your supervisor says in that 50 minute session, what they tell you is completely liable to them. So any advice they give you and it's fucked up shit, well guess what? So this is this is especially so yeah. So this is especially true for for people who are not licensed yet. Oh yes. Right. So if you're not licensed, you have to have a clinical supervisor and, and they are liable for what you do. Yes. Or potentially liable. Yeah. Potentially liable. Although you can have another, <clears throat> you can still get supervision yeah, while right. you're licensed mm-hmm. and they still be like, well, I was getting professional advice. Right. Especially when it comes to ethical situations yeah. or ethical dilemmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and all that stuff. So basic one-on-one for supervision. Uh, when you're an intern, an associate, mm-hmm. and license, is that they're the ones who is really going to be paying attention to how you do therapy. Mm-hmm. So really paying attention whether things you say and all that stuff are kosher. <laughs> <laughs> and you're doing no harm. Right. And in fact, giving you constant feedback, mm-hmm. even to a point where they should actually be somehow either witnessing you do therapy mm-hmm. to really make sure that under their name, you're doing good work. So quick pause here. Raise your hand if you have, well, I was going to say, 
Because, okay, so <laughs> hypothetically, right? Raise your hand. Like, how many of us have done therapy with no one watching? Like, at the very beginning, like, in, in, I'm thinking about internship. Mm-hmm. Like, that was something they talked about doing, yes. but it's actually not something that happened. I right. didn't have anybody sitting in the room other than like role plays that we did previous mm-hmm. to sitting with our first client. Right. Do you think my supervisor sat with me? And it was always offered, right? Like right. that's I should always preface it. Like it's always like on offer. Yeah. Um, but I hear a lot of stories about people where it not only is it not on offer, it's kind of like discouraged. Yeah, because they don't technology, have time. HIPAA issues, right. bullshit. Mm-hmm. I will say though, I should say mm. for me, yes, I did have mine were videoed. And so then I would review like video with my sure. supervisor. So they have the option of like, if there were concerns of watching my videos, yes. but there are a lot of people who don't even have that. Right. So I would have been so gung ho about people watching me do therapy because I actually want to be a great therapist. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so difficult to just even get that done because majority of the time, I don't think my supervisors knew how to be supervisors. Mm-hmm. So I also found out that supervisors should have weekly homework. Supervisors? Yep. Oh. To their supervisees. Weekly homework of either doing some sort of law issue, creating letters. Okay. Like all these really important things that we should know about, but they're the ones who are there to really hone in. So Washington State has the new form for Mm -hmm. supervision agreement, and it does say that. like. The supervisor is committing to the supervisee the following things are right. going to be. So, yeah. So, my the supervisor I just um, started a relationship with has been really on top of that and has really gone through all those different yeah, subjects. because she's amazing. Yes. She is amazing. Yeah. But, yeah. So, that's and, – and yet, like, right, we hear a lot of stories about people who aren't getting that. Right. And also, this is also, I'm sure, very systemic. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like, <laughs> shout out to all the people out there doing supervision – I don't think it's all individually your fault. No, it's not. Like they, It is a huge systemic issue. Like, just for example, in my agency, they had to become supervisors because we couldn't hire any other supervisors who have been certified in supervising. Right. Right? And so all they know is whoever supervised them, and that's right. how they did it, and so yeah. they're going to do that. And it's just this interesting trickling effect. Yeah. And it's pissing me off. Yeah, well, because, well, and yeah, because everybody suffers. Like Yes, everybody suffers. Especially because, like, like you were saying, not even knowing what the differences are. Mm-hmm. And then having, like, in good faith, by the way, like, in good faith trying to do a good job, but yes. maybe not having the information you need to do it. Yeah, and so we often find ourselves more or less panicking mm-hmm. when we don't have our supervisors on our side mm-hmm. at easy access. Yeah. I feel very fortunate with that being said that I feel like I've had some really good supervisors like in my internship Mm -hmm. and now and right just noticing that there are opportunities there like even within like good supervision because you know everything's kind of a work in progress totally and I've always really enjoyed it when my supervisors have been really transparent about that process yeah. And to acknowledge, like, so these are the things I've, I feel are my strengths. Yes. And these are the things that, like, I'm continuing to work on. I would like your input and your collaboration. Yeah. 
you know, and, you know, being invited to give feedback. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. For both. (laughs) Yes. Well, so one of the things that I thought supervision was for such a long time was Mm. basically therapy. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. How am I doing? Mm -hmm. What am I feeling in the session? Right. How is this impacting me? Yeah. Is this burnout? Is this secondary trauma? And that's sort of, which by the way, so good mm, so to good. do that mm-hmm. and I appreciate my supervisors who've let me explore those parts of me mm-hmm. and it just sucks that mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know shit yeah. so getting a subpoena and proper note taking mm-hmm. and you know constantly working on like proper diagnoses mm-hmm. and all these really important logistical things mm-hmm. should have been a constant homework mm-hmm. i mean annoying right super annoying <laughs> not just to me but for them as well sure however well and i what's interesting is i was kind of just reflecting on this where it's like i feel like we it's like i want to almost like create like a preface to all of our episodes or something but like <laughs> That, like, you and I are new therapists. Yes, we are. We're very early in our careers. We're not fully licensed. And I think that there's a huge value in having this experience as a new clinician because it's easy to forget or to become disconnected from what it was like the longer we're in any field. Any sort, you know, the more experience we get, the harder it is to remember what we didn't get or needed. Yes. So I think that's one of the benefits of this podcast is reflecting on that in real time yeah where it's like as it's happening being able to engage with or grapple with things that are systemic or difficult or maybe things that you know gosh we sure could have used more of (laughs) yeah and it's true and then and in real time how do you do that when you know it's missing yeah right yeah right and that that's so when we talk about best practices is Finding a good supervisor. And sometimes that means paying for additional supervision outside your agency. Interview them. Interview them. Mm -hmm. Really make sure that it's the the kind of therapist you actually find yourself becoming as well. Oh, that's a good point. I found out that was really important. Because if I went to someone who's a master at CBT, Mm -hmm. there's no way. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, "Uh, so... It's not going to work. Yeah. I like, mean, I'll I mean, learn great. Fine. I'll learn great skills. Sure. Uh, but that's definitely not the therapist that I want to be in. Right. Like. So it's almost like it sounds like finding a, a mentor. And then what's the difference between mentor and supervision? Right. Well, I mean, I think supervision, right, has a lot more. like Legality. Yes. Yeah, right, right, right. Because, right. like, the state and all that stuff and liability. Yeah. But I think that ideally if you can find a supervisor who can also be a mentor then that's like that's money in the bank right there and i think that's harder to find maybe than just somebody who can sign the paperwork and teach you some skills but maybe isn't like that mentor growth path for you or whatever well so that was interesting so there's apparently in order for people to become clinical supervisors Mm -hmm. or certified supervisors they have to go through a lot of Mm -hmm. training and there's multiple types of training. So some have just like, these are the things you need to be doing in mm-hmm. supervision. And others have sort of like an integrative uh, yeah. supervisor roles. Mm-hmm. And some of them are like, look, if you don't have level one down, which is sort of like building rapport and right. relationship and mm-hmm. all these amazing stuff. And I think therapist, we have this down. Like this is our most bread and us, butter. Yeah. Well, most of 
Most of us. <laughs> <laughs> per Lindsay. Yeah. And... I think generally they do a really good job with that. And then what gets up missing is then the level two part mm. of the homework and providing us uh, critical, not critical, feedback. Yeah. Right. Constructive feedback. Constructive. That's a better word. Um, and then level three is like this interesting, like building you up and sort of letting you go like, I have parented my child. Yeah, like now you can take risks, calculated mm-hmm. risks, use your skills. Yes. And grow from that. Really deciphering between gut instinct versus like indigestion, mm-hmm. indigestion of the situation. Right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. And I want to fucking know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't we all? <laughs> I just need to know. <laughs> Right, and I think... Marjorie, what would you do if I told you there's no answer? What the fuck? <laughs> and I think that that generally will start eliminating this sort of idea of imposter syndrome. Mm. <sighs> That's for another topic, I think. Uh, you're, like, ready to... <laughs> yeah, imposter syndrome is its own topic in of itself. Mm-hmm. We should do a whole episode on that. We should. Maybe episode seven. <laughs> So kind of going back to like best practices, like, so yeah, that consultation, there's some really great consultation groups and some of them are themed. Mm -hmm. Um, like here we have the Emily project, which Mm -hmm. is an eating disorder, um, and disordered eating program. And they do inpatient as well as, um, outpatient, intensive outpatient, Mm -hmm. but they also provide a consultation group for clinicians, counselors, therapists, and other people in the helping fields. Um, because not everybody works with disordered eating or eating disorders. Yeah. So sometimes you'll go to these consult groups to meet and know who in your community is doing that work. Yeah. Um, or, you know, we can say like, oh, I don't specialize in that, but realistically, right. You might have a client who comes with disordered eating. Yeah. Gee, wouldn't it be helpful <laughs> if we knew? And that consultation group, by the way, free. Fridays. Yeah. Yep. So free. And. You know, and there are other sort of consultation groups like that. So I guess point being best practice is to look what's in your community, look at what's doable, look at, um, you know, what's going to support your work and finding your like community. Like, I feel like we've been really fortunate where we have a group of people who have like some similar, like we're all, we're all different, Yeah. but we all have sort of like a similar nexus of like how we think about clinical work or sort of our, um, our approaches are all different, but we have a core value yeah. or how we think about the work. Exactly. Um, and that has been really beneficial to me, just speaking for myself. Um, right. So finding that, finding a supervisor. Um, go to therapy. Go to therapy. Um, and then continuing to do the work, like whether that's, I know for myself, something I'm really interested in is narrative therapy. So I'm going to, you know, begin that process of certification and, mm-hmm. you know, like the narrative, narrative Enneagram yes. stuff. Yeah. And so it's not that you'll have to do it all at once or whatever, but just like continuing to plan for it, to integrate it, to work towards. Yeah. You and know. I've, and I've even in just the reason why we say this is because there have been times after graduating Mm-hmm. And what a difference and shift between being an intern and mm-hmm. having all these amazing 
activities and skills mm-hmm. oh plans ideas and constant integration of mm-hmm. amazing amazing work and then it stops literally stops yeah suddenly you like don't know your skills off. yeah yeah <clears throat> and that was really scary is that what's for happening me. to me right now yeah Am I? okay <laughs> I know it happens and it's so scary and you're like am I a good therapist (sighs) yeah because you're not surrounded by people constantly engaged and I mean well I mean maybe you are like you're at an agency or whatever but it's different it's It's different outside of the academic environment yes and it's just so disheartening Mm. and just make that one of your like oh I'm not excited about work because I'm not learning Oh, yeah. You know, I'm not able to see this in a different light mm-hmm. or learn about mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But I think that one was a really big information mm-hmm. thingy for me when I was like, wow, I don't even want to do sanctuary play. See, what's interesting is as I'm thinking about this and yeah. what you're saying is like, and, and we're going to do a whole episode on why self-care is bullshit, but mm-hmm. actually I look at trainings and workshops and all of that sort of personal and professional development as a form of self-care. Not, not necessarily, I mean, it helps me like mentally and emotionally and stuff like that, but because it sends, I, it's like sending myself the message that I am important enough to invest in. Yeah. And I actually didn't realize how important, important or how needed that messaging is Mm -hmm. for me Mm -hmm. um but so that's something that has become a real cornerstone value not only to support you know my own work but that yeah that I can kind of factor in right the narrative the story yeah that I tell myself about you know the fact that I matter and how do I tell myself that I matter yeah and my so cat important. is meowing outside the door in case you can hear that. <laughs> he wants something. I know. He always wants something. Oh, man. Well, I think I think we're good. I think we, we've covered a lot of ground in this episode. Yes, we have. And I hope that it's been helpful or mm-hmm. at least gets your noggin thinking. <laughs> gets your noggin thinking. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really weird for a brown person to say. Uh. But it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I really hope that it's helpful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, give us a shout out if you have questions or if you have bef- best practices that you're integrating or that you think more people should be aware of, you know, mm-hmm. hit us up and maybe we'll mention it in the next episode. And yeah, for all of us out there, you know, just notice. <laughs> <laughs> and goodbye. <laughs> Hey, thank you for listening to our bullshit. Tired of your own excuses? Want to continue the conversation? Hit subscribe on wherever you listen to podcasts. And go ahead and leave us a review. It is, for some reason, really important for us to get reviews in order for people to see us out there into the (laughs) internet. And it would be really cool that if you do that, that way when people type in therapy or therapeutic, Um, We're up there in the searches. So that would be really cool. And uh, I hope you come back and listen to us.